Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another wonderful and exciting episode of the Anthology of Horror. As always, I am your host and narrator, Springheel Jack. And today we're going to be talking about a subject that I find very interesting because I hate the bitch, and that is Jody Arias, the not serial killer, but definitely deranged stalker murderer of the poor bastard known as Travis Alexander, which we are going to cover today in agonizing detail. Something about this case that fascinates me because, like, it could have happened to you, it could have happened to me. We all know a crazy broad, don't we? Anyway, we're going to get started today after a brief disclaimer or two. This show might offend you if you're a pansy-ass, candy-ass pussy. Please turn the show off now. Heaven forbid I hurt your feelings. Also, I use fake advertisements in this show that I do not own the rights to. They are creative property of Rockstar Games, and I do not own any of them. And we're going to get started after one of those fake ads from a fake company that doesn't sponsor this show. That's the drink of the streets! Alcoholic. What's up? For real motherfuckers. You being marketed at now, homie! A combination of everything that makes a memorable evening. Malt liquor and caffeine. Malt liquor. Malt liquor, caffeine. Janky than a motherfucker. It's just a little cuckoo throwy. It's a good time blackout in a can. What's up? You blacking out, asshole. I'm blacking out. Alcoholic keeps the party going. Even if you won't remember any of it. That's what's up. It's a good time. Blackout in a can. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. Uh, anyway, so today's episode is titled Death of a Salesman because I have no tact. Anyway. So there were two main parties involved in this case. I'm just going to jump right into it as I say dick first. And the victim of this tragic case, his name was Travis Alexander. He was born on July 28th of 1977. He was born in California in the inbred empire, uh, city of Riverside. Growing up, Travis had what many would describe as a terrible childhood, including me. I would describe it that way. Travis learned how to take care of himself from a very, very early age because his parents were crackheads. Uh, they were simply not able to take care of him correctly. They would leave his siblings and himself alone for days on end without food or water. And there was a general overall theme of neglect. Travis grew up in what most would consider to be extreme poverty, and he uh, even experienced living in a tent as a homeless kid. He also experienced a wide variety of physical abuse from his mother until his grandparents finally stepped in and took custody of all the kids. Travis got to experience a stable home, but also experienced many changes in routine and cultural differences. For instance, he uh, no longer ate crack for breakfast, and he had a roof over his head. Travis's grandparents were extremely religious Mormons, though, in all seriousness. Experiencing all of the religious changes created a new world for Travis. This led Travis to, to uh, being exposed to a community for the first time in his life, really. Travis took his beliefs with him into adulthood and became a practicing Mormon. But once he got a little older, I think 18 is when they go on their mission trip, he went on his mission trip with his church to Denver, Colorado. 
and from this experience he became more invested in the church, and it made his beliefs more concrete. After his mission trip, he decided to relocate to California to work for what I would describe as a pyramid scheme known as prepaid legal services. Uh, Prepaid legal services is a multi-level marketing company. That's a fucking pyramid scheme. He worked for a pyramid scheme. He was a Cutco guy. Or or, uh, what's the one they're selling now? Life insurance. Uh, But he was really good at it. So he was a greasy con man. I guess, you know, with his parents being the way that they were, how could he not? Travis excelled in his new job. He thrived, got into public speaking, made new friends, and was a large part of his community and his church. Most of his friends from the time described him as happy, outgoing, and quite the character. Although Travis loved his community and his job, he moved to Arizona due to Arizona having a slightly larger Mormon community than California. Travis was still happy at this point in his life, at least until he met Jody Arias. That's foreshadowing. It's a literary device. Now let's talk about Jody Arias, should we? Hmm. Much like Casey Anthony, I feel the only reason that this case got as much publicity as it did is because of how she looks. So I'm just going to get that out of the way right now. Jody Arias is not an ugly woman. She's a terrible person, but she's not an ugly woman. And uh, you can see her in all of her glory on the internet in great detail. If you catch my drift. Nudes. That's what I'm saying. As I said earlier, I have no tact... Jody Arias was born in the middle of California and went to high school in the asshole of the world, which was a town known by the name of Salinas, which, uh, funny story, I was up in Salinas a few years back, I was driving up there, and I stopped at a 7-Eleven to use the bathroom, and I left who I was with in the car, locked, and I come back out. And I see a commotion behind a dumpster, which was where my car was parked in front of. I parked in front of the dumpster. Uh, I really had to go to the bathroom, so I jumped out, didn't pay too much attention, locked the car, whatever, came back out. And I see a a scuffle going on or some some movement, right? And uh, the girlfriend that I was with was just laughing her fucking ass off in the car. And I couldn't figure out what she was laughing at, so I looked where she was looking. And I saw there was a man just like half hidden behind the dumpster. Tugging the limp noodle in broad daylight, just standing out in the open, attempting. Poor bastard couldn't even get it up, but he was attempting to beat off. Not looking at her, he was just staring off into space, trying tugging it. High as shit, I would imagine, but high as eagle dick. <laughs> and uh, that was Salinas. I didn't stop there again. But anyway, that's where Jody Arias was born, the charming downtown Salinas. And it seems that she had a fairly normal childhood, but that could just be because nobody had any evidence to the contrary. Uh, When you come across an interview of her talking about her early life, it's usually a useless snippet of of information. There's nothing really that stood out from what I saw. She, according to most of her friends, was a pretty decent girl in elementary school. Uh, She had a near-ideal childhood, in in her own words. Beginning at age 10, Aria showed an interest in photography, which continued throughout her adult life to her detriment, as we will see in the court case. Her childhood years, were, like I said, were unremarkable. 
Although she has said that her parents abused her, hitting her with wooden spoons and belts. Uh, the abuse allegedly began when she was seven, but who knows how true that is because she is a murderer. So I don't really take her word for what it's, I don't, it doesn't carry much weight with me, but I'm a bit biased. Because I hate this bitch. During early testimony, Arius made claims about the abusive nature of her parents, saying that it became more and more frequent as she got older. Probably as she got mouthier. At one point, she even claims that her mother carried around a wooden spoon in her purse so that she'd always have an instrument of torture should the need arise. Her parents, of course, couldn't be reached for comments, and I'm glad, because fuck that shit. They should have beat her ass harder. Arius dropped out of Eureka High School in Eureka, California in 11th grade. She was a junior. Uh, and she started a trend this year that she would carry for the majority of her unincarcerated life, and that was hopping on the dick of the first person that gives you attention and moving in with them. It's a, uh, it's a life strategy that people seem to employ when they need a place to live. And uh, according to her parents, they claim that after she left their home, she became mentally unstable to the point that her friends would call the mother every night, or at least a couple times a week, to inform her that they needed to get Jody some help. And they also stated that she would freak out all the time and have severe, like, mental breakdowns, almost like temper tantrums. She continued to pursue her interest in professional photography, however, while working part-time jobs. That just sounds like she's unemployed to me. In an interview with her mother, when asked if she could go back and do anything differently, she said, I'm a mom, just like any other mom. I did the best job I could raising my children. No, I wouldn't do anything differently. Good for you, Sandy. Uh, many armchair psychologists have speculated that Jody Arias probably developed the signs and symptoms of mental illness during her adolescent years. Uh, Psychology Today did an interesting breakdown on details of her unofficial diagnosis by the media and the general public. And it was quickly stomped on by a clinical psychologist named Dr. Dale Archer that said armchair therapists are quick to brand Arias with personality disorder known as borderline personality disorder. Uh, but Dr. Archer reminded everybody that a great deal of time and effort must be invested in psychological, psychological diagnosis, and it wasn't the case with her. So, that's a little tidbit about her mental health. It is widely speculated that she did develop some sort of a stress-triggered disorder in her adolescent years, like a lot of people do, uh, that have mental illness or suffer from mental illness, they develop it in puberty era of their life, and it's usually where it progresses from, although not always. If her parents' assessment of her mental health is indeed true, it's possible that she may have suffered from mental illness as early as childhood. There's no way to know for sure, but that being said, her parents still claim that she was mentally unhealthy during her late teen years for sure, and definitely as an adult, if you couldn't tell by the crime. In fall of 2001, Arius began working as a server at the restaurant at the Ventana Inn and Spa in beautiful, and I mean that seriously, not jerking off my dumpster beautiful, but actually beautiful, uh, Carmel, California. There was a guy named Daryl Brewer, the food and beverages manager, and he was in charge of the hiring and training of the restaurant employees. Arius and Brewer lived in staff housing together, and in January 2003, they began fucking each other. Arius was... 21, and Brewer was 40. 
According to Brewer, when asked about their relationship, he said, Well, we fucked before we began to date. That, that was it. And later, he said that Arius was a responsible, caring, and loving child. <laughs> oh, God. You're a fucking predator. In May 2005, Arius and Brewer purchased a home together in the not-so-glorious Palm Desert, California. They agreed, they agreed that each would pay half the monthly mortgage payment of $2,000. You fucking assholes. In February of 2006, Jody began working for that fucking pyramid scheme, prepaid legal services, whatever the fuck that means, while keeping her server's job at the Ventana. Job at prepaid legal services, she also met a bunch of Mormon people that she would have over for Bible studies, uh, really just kind of trying to make friends, I think, but they got her kind of wrapped up in the Mormon faith. In May, Jody told Brewer that she no longer, no longer wanted a physical relationship. <laughs> yeah, sure you don't. She wanted to practice what she was learning at church and save herself for her future husband. It's not how that works. Gotta, gotta plan in advance for that. Around the time, she decided to have breast implants. Because nothing says I want to save myself for marriage like fake tits. And uh, we're going to take a break on that note. Jesus fucking Christ. You love sports, but isn't it time to forget about friendly rivalries, tailgate parties, and marching bands? It's time America joined the rest of the world. Who's the Laker in the black? Embrace the global passion of soccer at the next Los Santos Benders home game. Let off flares, riot, and commit race crimes, just like the sophisticated Europeans do. Your feel the excitement of a Bender's home game while a normal post-game melee may result in a couple of burnt cars. A proper English riot can burn a town to shreds. It's time America finally joined in on the fun. The L.S. Benders. Season tickets only $50. Who's the Laker in the black? You've accidentally killed a family of four. We all know these things happen. You need to get out of jail to beat the shit out of your old lady for getting you into this mess in the first place. But you need money for bail. That's where we come in. At Jay's Bail Bonds. We're your new friend. We're here in your time of need. But skip town on us and we'll hunt you down like the vermin you are. You may be in a lot of trouble with the law, but now you're in debt to an angry, unregulated lunatic who will be happy to take a shit on the Constitution to get their money back. Contact Jay's Bail Bonds today. That's a fucking hustle for you. Bail bondsmen are fucking dirtbags. I'm sorry if I have any bail bondsmen listeners, but you guys, you know what you are. Was I? Anyway, let's see, let's see. Yes, Mormon breast implants. According to Brewer, during the summer, that's her ex-boyfriend, if you forgot, in the course of our two-commercial break. During the summer of 2006, Jody began to change as her involvement with prepaid legal increased. She became financially reckless and defaulted on her financial responsibilities, including her living expenses. As the relationship deteriorated, old man Brewer planned to move to Monterey to be closer to his son. Piece of shit. Jody did not plan to move with him. They agreed that she would remain in the house until it was sold, because she seems like a responsible custodian. Their relationship ended in December of 2006, and although they remained friends and occasionally called each other, the following year the house went into foreclosure. 
Enter Travis Alexander. Arias and Travis Alexander met in September of 2006, of all places, in fucking Las Vegas, at a Pyramid Scheme conference. Alexander was 30, and he was a motivational speaker and sales rep for prepaid legal. And for an initiation fee of $2,500, you too can learn his tricks. Dirtbag. Art, I shouldn't say that. The company founder was a dirtbag. Arius was 28 and living in Eureka, working in sales for prepaid legal and trying to develop her photography business. Although there's not much of a market for corpse photography and fucking gross sex pictures involving her butthole. There was an immediate attraction between Arius and Alexander. And according to Arius, the relationship became sexual nearly a week after they met. At the time, Alexander was living in Arizona. They began traveling to other states together, and when apart, they exchanged raunchy emails, 82,000 in total, and talking daily on the phone. The Klingmaster 3000. Both of them. They're both Klingmasters 3000, I'd say. ABC News tells us that Jody Arias was quite smitten with Travis Alexander. If you couldn't tell by the 82,000 emails, she was very excited about their relationship. She loved how funny he was, according to one of Alexander's friends. How much fun they would have together. Travis loved to uh, take her on adventures, whatever that means, and do different things. Likewise, Alexander reportedly saw Arias as his future wife, at least initially. However, the pair faced a number of huge hurdles. Alexander was living in Arizona and Arias lived in California. More pressingly, though, there was the matter of Alexander's religion. As a devout and active Mormon, he started feeling guilty, like all good religious boys should, about his premarital relationship with Arius. Meanwhile, he felt that he couldn't take things to the next level because their physical relationship meant she wasn't pure enough for marriage, because that's how... So, Jody was heavily invested in the relationship, but the feeling did not seem mutual. Travis did not seem as invested in the relationship as Jody and usually seemed kind of distant. Travis would often text other nice Mormon girls and was interested in other women. Jody found out about this and ended their relationship in June of 2007. Jody was of the typical stupid ass mindset that breaking up things or breaking things off with Travis would make him want her more. She believed that the situation would play out differently, but alas, it did not. The two continued to see each other for uh, sex reasons and whatnot which was entirely Jody's decision. She would show up at his house unannounced, break into his home, and sneak into his bed nude and wait for him. Because that's a nice surprise after a long day at work, your psycho naked ex in your bed. Travis did not break the relationship off entirely. Like I said, he continued to have sex with Jody while he was seeing other nice Mormon girls. Jody could not handle the situation as it was, though she didn't have the capacity for it. She was very jealous and wanted to have a committed relationship with him. Uh, Jody soon started stalking Travis. It was the logical progression. She was so obsessed with him that she needed to know who he was with and where he was at all times. Of course, she denies these claims as they shine a negative light on her. Uh, Jody was reportedly the culprit that slashed his tires twice and loved sneaking into his house while he had other women there. You might be wondering how she managed to get into his home and through the dog door. That was how she did it. That's why dog doors are fucking retarded. Dumbass. You ever seen that movie Leprechaun? <laughs> Fuck that. 
Travis expressed his concern with his close friends and told them that he could not take it anymore. Travis even included that she would break in and read his diary to gain information on his current state of mind. Why do you keep a diary? You're a grown man. (sighs) Jody would stalk Travis on his dates with other women and gain their information. She would then contact them and threaten them. Jody would continue to fuck around with Travis, and the two continued their sexual relationship into early 2008. As of April 2008, Jody seemingly gave up and relocated to Eureka, California, where she resided with her grandparents. Once a few months had gone by, Jody's grandparents called the police and reported a handgun, electronics, and cash stolen from their house. A few days after the call was made to the police, Jody rented a car in Redding, California, and drove to Arizona, where Travis lived. On her way to Arizona, Jody stopped by one of her many ex-boyfriends' house and ended up borrowing a couple of gas cans from him, and I'm sure slobbing the knob quite a bit. Travis was getting ready to leave for a trip to Cancun with a woman named Mimi Hall. Travis and Mimi were scheduled to depart on June 10th. Mimi did not hear from Travis for five days leading up to the trip and got extremely worried. June 9th. The ominous June 9th. That was the night before they were scheduled to leave for Cancun. Mimi went over to Travis's house, knocked on the door, but got no response. Mimi contacted a mutual friend, and a couple meet her at Travis's house to try to get in contact with Travis. Unfortunately, Mimi could not get into the home or get any response from Travis. Uh, Mimi realized that Travis's dog was still was in the house, so Mimi called a friend who had Travis's garage code, and they gained access to the home through the garage, because they were all too fat to get through the dog door, I guess. They entered the house through the garage and ended up in the laundry room, and while in the laundry room, they could smell a stank, a foul stank. They thought it was the dog, or maybe some trash, so they continued to go into the house. Mimi and the friends, and the squad, if you will, continued to Travis's bedroom, and they tried to access the room. They realized the door was locked. When they couldn't open the door, they became extremely concerned. Travis had two roommates. This is the fucking crazy part for me. Well, this is one of many crazy parts of this this case, but he had two roommates that were living with the smell of corpse rot and didn't didn't even fucking shake a leg. They were in the house at the time. They They ignored the pounding on the door. They ignored the breaking and entering. Uh, Zach was in his room and for some reason decided not to answer the door. I understand that. I don't answer the door. If I don't expect you and you're knocking on my door, have fun standing in the sun, douchebag. I don't answer the door for anybody. Fuck yourself, unless I'm expecting you. Both roommates did not notice the smell or didn't comment on it and didn't realize they hadn't seen Travis for a few days. Jesus Christ. In fact, Zach was under the impression that Travis had already left for Cancun. They found a a key to Travis's room and unlocked the door. All the people there went into the room and were met with a terrifying scene. And I will describe that scene in agonizing detail after these brief messages from fake companies. 
In the sea, there are big fish and there are little fish. The same is true on land. But which are you? Isn't it time to define yourself? At Shark, we have different Shark credit cards based on your level of insecurity. Let your credit card color define you. Go on a shopping spree with a red Shark card. The great white Shark is a beast of a card. Everyone in the restaurant will see it and know you are the ultimate predator. Tiger Shark is for the flamboyant spender. The bull shark for the violent, aggressive predator who hunts in all kinds of environments. Or there's the charitable basking shark. The card for the slow-moving liberal with no teeth. Shark for the apex predator. The Life Invader Tablet. It's time to dock. The future is now. Life Invader, the social networking site, announces its new tablet. It's not technology. It's your life. Live it the way you want. With a device that tells you what to do. It's time to dock. The Life Invader Tablet. We've skipped a generation, so you don't have to. Live tomorrow. You will be connected to humanity. You will be docked. Invasion never felt so good. The Life Invader Tablet. So, when they walked into the room, they saw blood everywhere. They found blood leading into the bathroom and shower, where they found Travis on the ground. The group immediately called 911. So just before midnight, the police showed up at the scene. Investigators viewed the body, but it was difficult to identify him or figure out the cause of death due to the disgusting amount of damage and the state of decomposition. Turns out that Travis was stabbed 29 times, shot above the right eyebrow, and his throat was cut nearly to the point of decapitation. Investigators took all the evidence at the scene, including hair, fingerprint samples, so on and so forth. Investigators quickly realized that all the bedding had been stripped from the bed and put in the washer. They also noticed the lack of evidence of forced entry, meaning the person who did this knew Travis or was familiar with the home. And uh, it took a squad of detectives to figure that out. Investigators quickly looked at his roommates uh, since they didn't answer the door and they hadn't smelled the stank. Uh, But the two roommates were pretty quickly cleared off the suspect list. They're just fucking idiots by the sound of it. Maybe not. Maybe they were just good roommates. I I had a roommate like that. that, Well, I never lived with the smell of corpse rot. But, you know, there might have been some weird shit that was going on and he just wouldn't say shit. And it was a two-way street. When the authorities looked for the bedding, they found it was in the washing machine. They also found a camera in the washing machine. Investigators believed that whoever had put it there thought it would destroy the SD card and all the images on it. Stupid fucking asshole. God, I'm glad she's an idiot, because this could have been terrifying, even more so. Before authorities contacted Jody in any way, Jody contacted them, as most innocent people do. Jody asked if she could help with the case in any way. She seemed to be devastated about the news of his passing. Police asked Jody what she knew, and her response was, I know that he passed away and there was a lot of blood. How would you know that? In the same call, Jody thought it was mandatory to tell the police her alibi. On her road trip, she called Travis and left him a voicemail that was left around six hours after his death. On the voicemail that Jody left on his phone, she goes into depth on her road trip experience. Jody says that she got lost and her phone was dead. She continues to say she went for 100 miles in the wrong way and was lost. The authorities found this voicemail and decided to bring Jody in as a suspect and take her fingerprints and DNA samples. When officers brought Jody in, they also brought in a few of Travis's friends. Most of those friends had a lot to say about Travis and Jody's relationship, 
and instantly thought that Jody was Travis's murderer. Which, you know, logical, logical, you would get to that point logically. Because, I mean, what, 90% of all murders are committed by the significant other? Maybe a little less, but fucking shit, dude. So let's talk about Jody's first alibi. Her first version was that she was in Northern California on June the 2nd. She drove to Southern California to meet friends. And on June the 5th, she arrived in Utah, Salt Lake City. Police believed that this was the day after Travis's death and now know that he was murdered on June 4th for sure. So when Jody came in for her interview with the police, they noticed that she had changed her hair color from blonde to brown. Police also saw cuts on her fingers, which she chalked up to bartending. Police run some tests on Jody's cell phone and find that she'd actually that she had actually driven south and then uh, to Mesa, California. Jody had taken a trip to Arizona, but it was unclear why. After going to Arizona, Jody then went to Salt Lake City and back home to Northern California. Almost true to her word. The results from the SD card from the camera then came in, and Jody was found to be in multiple pictures that were dated June the 4th. Oh, look at that, stupid bitch. You gotta degauss electronics, man. You can't just throw it in water. They're too good for that now. They're all sealed. And by this time, the police knew that Travis was murdered on that day. Other photos show show the entire situation panning out. The murder was witnessed by the camera. Stupid bitch. As the police went through the images, they see that one of the last normal photos was of Travis's face, and he looked scared. In Jody's interview footage, Jody tries to stick to her story as much as possible and denies all allegations based on her involvement and location. Jody was presented with clear evidence of her involvement. The police had pictures, hair fibers, DNA extracted from the crime scene. They all matched Jody Arias. One of the images taken from the camera shows Jody's legs standing over Travis's dead body. Once they presented all the evidence to Jody, she started to flip out. And I believe one of the pictures showed her butthole. Uh, like bending down to move him or something, because I guess she'd slept with him or something that day, whatever. With all the evidence gathered from the crime scene, including, including Jody's bloody handprint found on the wall, the police tell Jody they have no doubt that she was the one who murdered Travis. Since they had so many pieces of evidence, they made the arrest. After she was placed under arrest in the interrogation room, Jody acted weird. She seemed catatonic at times, and other times like she was doing yoga, stretching and looking in the trash for something. My favorite, Bikram trash yoga. Jody is also seeing, seen singing religious music to herself and saying to herself, do you still hate me? She actually had a pretty nice singing voice, all things considered, but fuck her. In her mugshot photo, she's smiling as if she was taking a picture on vacation, and during her questioning, Jody was questioned by a woman. Jody asked her current questioner, who was male. Wait, what? During her other questionings, Jody was questioned by a woman, and Jody asked for a different questioner, who was male. Jody also wanted to see the images of the scene and of Travis's mutilated body multiple times. So let's talk about her second alibi. As the interrogations uh, proceeded, Jody changed her story. She admitted that she had, in fact... Uh, was she, she was, in fact, there the day that he died. She goes on to say that she'd witnessed his murder. Jody says that two people broke into the house that day and attacked him. The discussion goes on 
by her telling this story. Jody says that the attackers were both female and male. The male attacked Travis. Jody lunged at the female, but the female attacker had a knife. Jody apparently tried to get Travis up, but said he could not move. Jody then described the scene at this point to be bloody and brutal, and the attackers apparently debate on killing Jody. As the story goes, the interrogator finds many inconsistencies and tells Jody that he didn't believe a fucking word that she said. Pretty good police work in this, because uh, I feel like they could have got suckered into a you know a free blowjob and a not guilty fucking, or we're not charging you thing. But good for the police officers involved, they did a good job. So what did the crime scene say? It seems to be that Jody and Travis were having one of their average sexual encounters when something odd happened. The scene shows that there was a physical altercation of some sort between the two. The altercation occurred in the bedroom, and it's believed to be where he cut his neck. This resulted eventually in his death. And unfortunately, during this altercation, Jody had dropped the camera, and the camera must have been resting on the fucking fire button because... Caught a bunch of different images of the struggle, and some even show Jody standing over and even dragging Travis's body and her butthole. If you type in Jody Arias's butthole on on Google Images, you will be disappointed, but you will see it. Although authorities believe that Jody then dragged Travis's body into the bathroom and proceeded to wash him off, she just left him there. It's a fun fact. I forgot to tell you that Travis used to affectionately call Jody the three-hole wonder. And, uh, like I said, if you want to see pictures of her blown-out asshole, it's online. Jody's third alibi. In court, Jody changed her story yet again. She starts to say that the incidents that happened that day were not homicidal. It was self-defense. She said that she went into his home in Arizona. Once at the house, they began to have sex, as usual, until she picked up the camera and dropped it. According to Jody, Travis became enraged and lunged at her. Jody said that Travis's body slammed her onto the tile, and then she ran out into the hallway. Jody said she was terrified. She ran into the closet, grabbed his gun, then ran to him in the bedroom where she pointed the gun at him. Jody says he charged her, and the gun went off. Yeah, guns tend to do that when you point them at somebody's head and pull the trigger. In the middle of the trial, Jody claims that she was abused by her father and by Travis. Her parents deny the allegations of abuse. To this day, it never happened. Which, I'm inclined to believe the parents, they've been pretty open. Uh, they, they've given tasteful interviews that I think were pretty concise. So after this brief break, we're going to talk about the trial, which was uh, a bit of a spectacle. Not as much of a spectacle as Casey Anthony, granted, but uh, Jody Arias was not nearly as charming as Casey Anthony. And I mean that, take that for what you will. And remember that Casey Anthony was found not guilty. Break time. Hello, my name is Yogi Ampetipaka. Yoga is a way of slowly making your mind and body one. But we haven't got time for that. We've got to keep it interesting. We finally made yoga American with bloodlust, failure and swinging. It's Darwinian yoga. Each class takes you to the edge, and only the strong survive. You not only improve yourself, but feel doubly better because someone else is failing. Darwinian yoga revealed the inner truths. I'm rich. 
successful and throwing it all away on multiple women. I'm drowning in pussy. It's terrible. Sounds like a serious case of sex addiction. Buy my book, 13 Steps to Heaven, today. 13 Steps to Heaven, available in the discount bin at bookstores everywhere. In 2008, Jody Arias was indicted for first-degree murder, and while awaiting her trial, she did an interview with the Inside Edition. And she ended up telling the public and the interviewer that she is innocent. Her trial started on January the 2nd, 2013. The murder was presented as premeditated, and Travis's family was seeking the death penalty. It's not very religious of you. One of the issues in this case was the state of the body and the order of his injuries. Nobody really knew if the bullet to the head was before the stabbing and slash throat or maybe the other way around. Travis's body was so terribly decomposed at the time he was found that they couldn't tell. Eventually, the medical examiner decided to rule his cause of death as blood loss. In this case, it was prevalent to the medical examiner that Travis had self-defense wounds. The court said they believed the motive for murder in this case was the trip to Cancun with another bitch. A discovery was made about the gun she used in the murder. Jody's grandparents, as I said earlier, had reported a weapon missing from their home, uh, and Travis was shot in the head with a gun that was not found. He had a gun of the same caliber, which I believe was a twenty-five, and her grandpa did as well. But I think his gun was still at the scene. Grandpa's was not. Coincidence? Probably not. The trial was very hard on Travis's family due to the number of grotesque photos presented. Many of the photos were post-mortem and just disgusting. When the court brings up her statement, they asked why she would stab him 29 times, cut his throat, and shoot him in the head if it was self-defense. During the trial, Jody began to slander Travis's name. Jody said he was an abusive rapist, and he was a pedophile. Jody says that she stayed with him so he would not act on his pedophilia. There has been no evidence of truth to that story, and there was there was evidence maybe of a sexual addiction, but it just seems like a puppy love infatuation if you ask me. Daryl, Jody's ex-boyfriend, took the stand at the trial. He explains that they had a good relationship. Jody was very kind and loving to his son. His presence there backfired, however, and he was asked why Jody took the two gas cans. Prosecutors believe that Jody took them so she wouldn't appear on camera in Arizona. If this is true, then it shows premeditation was indeed there. Jody took the stand for 18 days. She went into detail about everything she remembers from the day that Travis died. Jody says that she does not remember stabbing Travis at all. Blackouts are common during cases like this. Her story was inconsistent, though, with a blackout or fugue state, and they deemed this information to be a lie. Plenty of psychologists analyzed her story and came out to say they don't believe a fucking word of it. One thing that was unusual about this trial has to be that the court let the jury question her, and the jury submitted over 200 questions. The jail had found out that Jody smuggled a secret message to her friend in a magazine. The police questioned her friend, and Jody had sent this message saying that everything this friend said contradicted her story that she'd been telling. Wait, what? The jail found out Jody smuggled a secret message to a friend inside of a magazine. The police questioned this friend, and Jody had sent this message saying that everything this friend said contradicted her story that she'd been telling for the last year. 
The jury took four days to deliberate. The jury could not decide if the murder was planned beforehand or a spur-of-the-moment crime of passion. On May 8th of 2013, the jury was ready to announce their verdict. The court and the jury found Jody guilty of first-degree murder. Five of the jurors found the murder to be premeditated, and zero jurors found it to be felony murder. Seven jurors found it to be both premeditated and felony. They still had to decide whether the death penalty should be included or not. Jody expressed her desire for the death penalty. People were angry at that statement uh, because Jody also, in a tactless move, wore a t-shirt that said Survivor. What a cunt. The jury could not decide if they wanted the death penalty or the life sentence. Eight jurors wanted the death penalty, four were undecided, and because of the inconclusive decision, the court declared a mistrial. They had to do the whole thing over again. So, the trial part two, Electric Boogaloo. They still had a hung jury. Eleven juries, eleven jurors declared the death penalty, and one fucking cuckled asshole settled on a life sentence, which meant another mistrial. Arizona had a change in the law, and they made the law that the judge can declare the death penalty or life sentence, probably because of this. Misconduct was supposedly present, and Jody's side argued to trash all the charges. At the end of it, the death penalty was taken off the table, but that's good because she wanted the death penalty, and it would be more of a fucking crime for her to live knowing that she killed the one person she was crazy about and having to relive that moment in the hole for fucking 35, 40 years. Fuck that shit. Before Jody was sentenced, she made a public statement to Travis's family and apologized. On April 13th of 2015, Jody was sentenced to life in prison with no possibility of parole. Damn. Fuck that, dude. I'd rather be dead. Thankfully, Travis and his family received justice. Jody is still in prison to this day. To this day, she's in prison. She's tried to appeal many times, including as recently as 2020, due to her cross-examiner being unfair to her. The judges have told her that it has nothing to do with Travis's case, and they sent her back to her jail cell. And I hope you found this information informative and helpful. And please, let me know what your thoughts are. And we're going to talk about stats after another brief break. And announcements and shit. Hey! Do you want to feel so energetic? Try Power Thirst. Energy drinks for people who need gratuitous amounts of energy. With all new flavors like chocolate. Chocolate energy. It's like adding chocolate to an electrical store. Sound the alarm. You're going to be uncomfortably energetic. What's that? You want strawberry? Well, how about rawberry? Made with lightning. Real lightning. Sports. You'll be good at them. It's an energy drink for men. Energy. These aren't your dad's puns. These are energy puns. Turbo puns. Science, energy, science, energy, electrolytes, turbo lights, power lights, more lights than your body has room for. You'll be so fast, Mother Nature will be like, slow down. And you'll be like, fuck you, and kick her in the face with your energy legs. You'll have so much energy, energy, uh, just running all, all the, the time. time. Power running, power lifting, power sleeping, power dating, power eating, power laughing, power spawning babies. You'll have so many babies. 400 babies. Give chocolate to your babies and they'll be good at sports. Make your babies run abnormally fast. They'll run as fast as Kenyans. People will watch them running and think they're Kenyans. They'll race as fast as Kenyans against actual Kenyans and it'll be a tie and they'll get deported back to Kenya. Hey, go with the sure thing. Don't gamble on your energy. Snake eyes. Try Power Thirst, the energy drink that will make you uh, sort. Uh, 
in a rocket can. Power thirst. Rocket edition. With all new flavors like banana, fizz bitch, and gun. You've had the worst. Now try the thirst. Quencher! Power thirst. Side effects include glowing sweat. Use your sweaty body to fuel sweet rave parties. Power thirst. Anything is possible. The sport you'll invent because you'll be too energetic for normal sport. You'll feel like a fighter jet made of biceps. What about me and my blue collar? Juice Turn that every man into a beverage. Beverage stands for beverage. We interrupt this advertisement to blow your mind. Power thirst now comes in women. Now with preposterous amounts of testosterone. Preposterone. Think fast, douche fag. Power thirst now comes in doves. Oh, hubcatting. Similar to bear blasting. Oh Lord, why have you forsaken me? Can it? When God gives you lemons, you find, find a new God. Power thirst. God Mary, King of the Jews. Unacceptable. Drink Power Thirst and you'll win at everything forever. You'll win at running, football, arson, weddings, and art. You'll even win at irony. Top score. Still unconvinced? We'll check out these testimonials from real Power Thirst drinkers. Boop. 400 babies. Boop. Power thirst. It's really oh oh. All right. Power thirst. It's like crystal meth in a can. It's crystal meth in a can. Power thirst is crystal meth. Warning. May contain anacornicoba. Oh. All right. Welcome back. So, first off, I want to thank the top ten countries of listenership, and in order, they are the United States, Canada, United Kingdom, Australia, Mexico, Germany, Sudan. That's a new one. Thank you, Sudan. France, New Zealand, and the Philippines. Top 10 cities. Number one, Columbus, Ohio. Strong numbers. God damn. Thank you, Columbus. I hope I'm pronouncing this right, but number two, Hogue, Ohio. Also strong numbers. Atlanta, Georgia. Coming in next. Centennial, Colorado. Boston, Massachusetts. Houston, Texas. Chicago, Illinois. Columbine, Colorado. Dallas, Texas. La Vista, Nebraska. That's a new one to the list. Welcome, La Vista. And I also want to thank you guys. I've almost cracked a quarter million listeners, so thank you for that. That is the ego stroking that I was desiring. Now let's see if we can make it, you know, a quarter billion. So if you could continue to share this show and rate it five stars on the iTunes store, doesn't really mean shit to me because I don't have any sponsors, but it would be appreciated for my ego. Uh, it's much appreciated, all the support you guys give me already. I believe I still have a Patreon, and you should be able to find it if you go to patreon.com slash anthologyofhorror. I believe I also still have a website, that is anthologyofhorror.com, and there should be a link to said Patreon on that website. There's also a very cool, very cool, I said, uh, uh, podcast episode player, I guess. But you can find me, as you know, wherever decent podcasts are manufactured and, and uh, release to the general public. So if you could share those links to people that you think would like the show, it would be appreciated. And as always, if you guys have questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at instagram.com slash dukelandis17. That is D-U-K-E-L-A-N-D-I-S-1-7. I may not get back to you quickly, but I will get back to you at some point. That much I promise you. Uh, I like staying in touch with people that listen to the show. It genuinely means a lot to me. And I try my best to get in touch with you if you reach out. So please, don't hesitate to reach out, because I love hearing from you guys. Uh, 
Yeah, that's it. So until next time, you crazy motherfuckers, don't tell the bitch where you live and stay spooky.